Dr. Claude Herman Barlow. Some of you may have heard of him before. Dave, I'm just going to take this. Wasn't that song incredible? Oh my gosh. The way you guys performed it, that was just amazing. So, Dr. Claude Herman Barlow. He was a medical missionary and a leading researcher of parasitic disease. So in the early 1900s, he was in the Shishang region of China where he discovered a widespread parasitic illness that often led to death and it was caused by one of these crazy looking things, a fluke worm. He did not have the proper equipment or the facilities to do the research on this disease and he couldn't bring sick, infected Chinese people back with him to the states. Immigration wouldn't allow that. So what he did, he actually consumed the flukes. He allowed them to infect his body. Then he returned to the States where his colleagues at John Hopkins University down in Baltimore studied his infection, they cured him, and they produced necessary treatments that he then could take back to China. And he brought it back, he administered it to the people there, he risked his own life to save the lives of countless thousands of Chinese people. And if that wasn't enough, in 1929, after that ordeal, he actually went to Egypt to work for the Rockefeller Foundation. He also was a member of the Egyptian Ministry of Health, and he started research on another parasitic disease called whatever, Ginny or Dr. Fernando, you can tell us what that is, which is also caused by a member of the fluke worm family, and interestingly enough, was and still is one of the most common diseases in the world. Again, he needed to study these worms in the U.S., he tried shipping them back, they wouldn't survive. He infected animals, they died on the way back, so he did it again, he infected himself. But this time when he got to the States, he and his colleagues studied the disease for 10 months before they started treatment. These are some of his notes from his diary. Fever as high as 105, intense abdominal and bladder pain, open lesions as the infection eats through my skin almost impossible to go to the bathroom because of the pain. Even after they started the treatments, which were almost as unbearable as the disease itself, it was another eight months before he was cured. 18 months and nearly dying. But his research was invaluable to the medical world's understanding of the disease and in creating less toxic and grueling treatments. Countless people worldwide have benefited from Dr. Barlow's amazing self-sacrificial ways. When he was asked, why did you do this? He responded amazingly humbly, and he said, my favorite scripture is, my father works till now, and so do I. This man was driven by the conviction that the message of Christ is to love others as God loves us. This is what Philip Yancey calls the melody of grace. I love that, the melody of grace. Do we walk to that melody? Do we dance to that melody? Do we hear that melody? Do we know it? Well, I believe this is exactly what the prophet Habakkuk heard as he sat silent in the temple of God. The melody of grace. The song of God's love. So, last week we began our exploration of this obscure but amazingly wonderful book in the Old Testament as part of our Galatian series. And the reason we did a short detour, well, it's not a detour, but the reason we're looking at Habakkuk is because St. Paul quoted this prophet in 
the text that we're in right now. The righteous shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. This is a direct quote from Habakkuk, which, which, which we looked at. And it shows up here. Paul, Paul quoted him again when he wrote to the Romans. Whoever wrote Hebrews quoted this line as well. So that's why we're looking at this. We have been discovering what this means, I think, as we're in our Galatians series. And what we're coming to terms with is that we need the gospel every single day. We're learning that the gospel not only saves, it transforms us. The gospel is not just the beginning of Christianity, which a lot of us have been taught. It is the beginning, middle, and end of Christianity. We can never go away from the gospel. We need it all the time. Excuse me. And specifically last week, we saw that Habakkuk in his book is demanding an answer from God as to why the innocent suffer, why the innocent suffer while the evil seem to profit. This, this prosper, while the evil seem to prosper, this ancient as old as mankind is, this, this question that we have. And we saw that God honors this honest protest and doubts and questions. We saw that. And we, we realized that the entire Bible is just nothing but doubts and questions and protests. And God's right there and he's fine with it. The entire book of Psalms, which is all pray, prayer. Prayer. The Psalms are prayers. We talked about this last week. I don't want to get too much into what we did last week. You can catch up on that. But the Psalms are prayers. We hold these up as prayers, and yet so much of our religion has ignored them. So many of the prayers and so many of the Psalms are just nothing but grotesque, raw human emotion asking God to kill people. But that's real. It's honest. And God's good with it. That's why he put it in his Bible. And it's okay when we get real and honest with God, with our doubts and our questions. God honors it because it leads to authentic relationship, and that's what ultimately God is after. He doesn't want us to be like the professor who comes back and tells what he thinks about the fire, or the lieutenant. He wants us to be the king beetle that just becomes one with the fire. He wants this relationship. And we also learn that God is God and that some of our ideas of him can become idols. We saw that last week that take us away from actually loving him. That was one of God's, when he was battling back and forth with Habakkuk in this great back and forth of protest, one of God's protests was, well, you just made idols of what you think I am. So why don't you deal with that? Because that's not who I really am. It's, really, it's an amazing book. You should read it on your own. We learn God wants us to love him for who he is and not for what he can necessarily do for us in any given situation. And we learn that he answers us slowly and in relationship just as he answered Habakkuk. All right, so that's a quick update on where we're headed today. So we ended last week, and God had said this to the prophet. Uh, he said, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. I'm going to do something in your day you would not believe, even if you were told. Write down the vision, make it plain, for the vision awaits an appointed time. Okay, he's basically saying, listen, something unbelievable is coming, a vision that the righteous can trust and live in. Okay, then he tells the prophet, after he gets through that, he tells the prophet, listen, go sit in the temple and be quiet. Just sit there and be still. Sort of like the psalmist says, be still and know that I am God. Habakkuk had spent his time yelling and screaming and God was fine with it and drew him closer to himself. And then he sort of said, why don't you just go and sit and be still? and think about God. Sort of like his engagement with Job. Habakkuk is like this cliff note version of Job for those that don't have time to study Job for the next 10 years, study Habakkuk. It's very similar. 
Okay? So, the question is, what did the prophet learn as he sat in silence? What did the prophet learn as he sat here? Well, I suggested he learned grace. He learned the melody of grace. He learned about the unconditional love of God. And this is why I believe it. I believe it for two reasons, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. The first reason is because of the response of the prophet to his time spent in silence. And we'll look at that in a second. Okay? He has a very def definitive response when he comes out of the temple after his silence. Two, the thing we're going to look at first is there is a careful word study of an item that is mentioned in Habakkuk and in many other places of scripture makes me believe that Habakkuk learned about the love of God. Okay? So before we get here, I want to make a side note. How do we approach scripture? How do you approach scripture? Okay? And we've talked about this before, Cana, but it's important to bring it back. It's been a while since I have. So here's what Jesus said to Nicodemus. Jesus answered said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? And this is Jesus was just done talking about himself and about salvation. And Nicodemus was clueless. And he said, What? You're the religious leader of this entire people and you don't know these things? And then he said this to other religious leaders. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. To the religious leader. Now, don't do what modern Americans have done for the last 150 years, and some Europeans probably done for the last 500 years. This is not a Jewish-Gentile question. That's not what this is. Jesus is talking to Jews about their scripture. Okay? What is their scripture? Our Old Testament. That's all about Jesus Christ. According to God, anyway, if Jesus is God, that's what the Old Testament's about. You know this, and you don't know me, he says. And I think this remains a challenge for many of us to navigate. So, I've been approaching scripture this way for probably a decade, and it still is a challenge for me to remember that when I'm reading scriptures, I'm reading about God's love for us, and I'm reading about the Christ event. See, what happens is, it's easy to learn the scriptures in a textbook kind of way. We get taught that, right? And so, those of us that do read it that way, we tend to come to believe in them for eternal life, and not the Christ whose scriptures are all about. We mix up the Bible with God, and we mix up the Bible with Jesus Christ. We move more into relationship with the Bible than we do with Jesus Christ. So I think it's extremely important to read and understand the Bible as God's word to us, which tells us all about Jesus Christ. I think that's important. Because if he said eternal life is in him, then I think that's who we want to know, right? And I'll tell you this, to read it that way, Scripture opens up. And my guess is, I was having this, a, a thought this week when I was studying, maybe the reason the majority of us Christians don't read the Bible is because we've lost this. We've been so told to read it be, just for what it is, that there's nothing more important than the Scriptures. Nothing, including God, including Jesus Christ, nothing, right? You've got to know the Bible. Well, if that's a textbook, 
Honestly, who wants to read that? I don't. I, I've read textbooks. Jared's home from break and getting his umpteenth degree. He reads textbooks all the time. Who would read the Bible as a textbook? Even when you take classes on the Bible as a textbook, you don't read the whole Bible. It's impossible. And maybe that's why we don't read it. But when I read it, to find Jesus, to find God's love for me, to find my messiness, to find this beautiful story of redemption and, and, and becoming one with the fire, wow, it changes everything. And it's, all of a sudden it's easy to read because it opens up and it becomes beautiful and, and I'm not trying to figure out the textbook thing. And, and I don't get caught up and, and, and all worked up when I find things that sort of don't go. And I don't have to jump through hoops of making everything work perfectly. Because that's not what it is. It's God's love letter to us. It's amazing. It's an amazing thing. Okay, there's my side note back here to the story. Back to Habakkuk, okay? So, in chapter 2, here we go. We're going to talk about that thing, that thing, why I believe Habakkuk sat in silence and learned, finally, how much God as a God of love and loved him. So here's God talking. Woe to him who gives drinks to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you and disgrace will cover your glory. There were not a lot of nice people in those days. Anyway. The cup in the Lord's right hand. We've heard of this, right? Okay? Here's this item. This item is throughout Scripture. Here's Jeremiah and Isaiah talking about it. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations whom I send you drink it. Awake, awake, rise up, O Jerusalem, you have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. So these prophets identify this cup as the cup of God's wrath. The psalmist mentions it, as does another real minor prophet, Obadiah. In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. Obadiah doesn't directly mention it, but it, he obviously refers to it just as you drank on my holy hill. So all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. Okay, same thing Obadiah is getting to. And then most of us have probably heard of this item through the book of Revelations. The, the writer of Revelations is quite clear about what it is. He too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength. God remembered Babylon the Great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. So we have the cup of God's wrath. So what does that mean? And why is God filled with wrath? And right away your mind's probably saying, right away thinking of all the things you've been taught about this and told us. Well, I'm going to say something very traditional, very Christian. God is filled with wrath because God hates sin. Now I'm going to reimagine what that means. Okay? As opposed to it meaning, therefore, God hates sinners, as many Christians are wont to say, that's not what it means. That's how God died for us while we were sinners. Isn't it amazing when we come up with our theologies, we just forget basic truths of the Bible? Like, God died for us while we were sinners. And then it says he died for us because he loved us, right? Okay, but it doesn't mean God's not full of wrath. Here's what I think his wrath means. He hates sin because of what it does to us. So sin kills us. 
God loves us, therefore anything that hurts us, he hates. If it is not like this, if this is not what the Bible is teaching, then I suggest this whole Christian thing is a waste of time. And here's why I suggest that. Because if God has arbitrarily called some things sin and others not, if he's called good things bad or bad things good, just because he needs to have rules and he needs people to follow his rules, like the king's would have done when a lot of these scriptures were being written. That's how kings are, right? Kings just come up with rules. And you either follow them or not. Well, if that's all God was doing, then how can that God be trusted? If he called something good bad, or something bad good, how, how could you trust that? Right? How could you ever trust that? Furthermore, if he just randomly named things sin, then he has all this wrath, because we broke those rules, then his angry ranting and raving is sort of just like the sadistic stepmother in Cinderella, right? Screaming and you know, all worked up at Cinderella because she didn't follow the rules. But the rules really didn't mean anything. They don't have any meaning. But if sin hurts us and God really does love us, then his wrath is understandable. Here we go, those of us that are parents. How filled with wrath do you get at things that hurt your child? So Dave's a teacher and I'm a soccer coach. We'll tell you about parents' wrath. And we don't even hurt their kids. He just gives honest grades and I give honest critiques. And then we get told that we're jerks. And they hate us because their children cried at home. And that's nothing. Listen, I, I, I know what wrath is like. When Noah was born with a hole in his heart, I was angry. Didn't know who to be angry at, but I was angry. When someone's going to hurt your child, what kind of wrath would you have if someone broke into your house and was going to attack your children? What if there was a pack of wild dogs? Just imagine the strength you would suddenly have and the wrath and the fury at this thing that was going to destroy your children. And we're humans. We don't even love properly but we get that much of the divine spark, right? So, God who loves us perfectly so much he died for us, of course he's got wrath. Of course. And this, I believe, is the cup of wrath that Scripture's talking about. This kind of wrath. And the purpose of this cup becomes clear when Jesus talks about it. Okay? So here we go. All three writers of the Synoptic Gospels quote Jesus as saying the identical thing, which is very unusual for the Synoptics. My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. So here's Jesus on the verge of going to the cross. So the cross, the crucifixion, this cup of God's wrath. But hold on before you let your mind jump to what you've always been taught, or what we've always been taught. John records Jesus saying this. Jesus commanded me to put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Okay. So, God's wrath is the cure for sin. It will destroy the sin that tries to destroy us. But here is God's dilemma. God's wrath is so powerful and the sin is so deep in us 
The cure will destroy us. Sin is so deep in us, it's in our DNA. The cure has to get all the way in there. So, let's look at it as a metaphor, and we have someone right in our midst that's a perfect metaphor, though we all know people who have had cancer or have cancer, but we've been praying and fighting with Rich his cancer. So he's in the middle of getting chemo that is trying to destroy the cancer in his body. He'll tell you it's doing a pretty gosh darn good job of destroying a lot of other things in his body too. And that cancer is just sort of there. And the cure for it is incredibly destructive. Now imagine the cancer that goes deep into the everything. Okay? God's wrath, God's cure for sin has to get so deep inside that will, it will certainly cause us all to die because sin is so much a part of our experience. This is where the cross comes in. This is where Jesus Christ comes in. Let me give an illustration. Imagine your child has a very rare disease that needs a very powerful drug that the pharmaceutical companies have discovered and have created. The problem is it kills. It can't not kill the host of the disease too. So your child's going to die. Except the doctors call you into a private meeting and explain to you, listen, there's one chance to save your kid. We'll give you the disease, and then we'll give you the drug. You will die, but your body will create antibodies that we can use to cure your child. We're, we're in, right? Most of us human parents are in on that. I'm in on that. I used to do that, you know, you probably, probably some of you guys do this too. You know, you, you pretend that the universe has this, you know, like, like what Bono was talking about, this karma, this equal thing, you know. So when Noah had a hole in his heart, I was like, oh God, just give me the hole. Take it away from him. As though that, that's, that's not how the world works, but I used to pray that all the time, right? Who would hesitate to do that for their kid? No one. I would do that. I wouldn't even think about it. Yep, let's get it going so we can get him cured as fast as possible. And I don't even love my kids the way God loves us. God loves us so perfectly, he wouldn't hesitate, and he didn't hesitate. And I believe that's what the cross is all about. I believe God took his own cure, drank the cup of his own wrath, so that we could be cured without dying. His life for our life. The melody of grace. It's beautiful. And listen, I know that goes against many traditional understandings of the cross in Christianity. And if you're uncomfortable with what I just suggest, it's okay. Be uncomfortable. But don't reject it. Sit on it. Read the Bible. The whole Bible. Don't go and let someone else tell you what it means. Just read the Bible. And after a couple years of reading the Bible and thinking about this story, then, then see if it's true. See if this is what's going on. When Paul tells us, listen, it's not about what you do. It's about what God did. His life for our life. And isn't that beautiful? 
I know when I sat here and I opened today talking about Dr. Barlow, a number of you were moved by that. You had to have been, right? Yes, no? That's God's story. And we've sanitized it. And we've made it about us. But it's not. We don't appease God. He just died to save us. And I believe that's the vision, this object of the faith that the just shall live by, the unbelievable thing that Habakkuk finally heard as he sat in the temple of God. And if that word study I just gave you doesn't convince you that that's what Habakkuk learned in the temple of God, then how about this? He comes out of the temple of God and he writes chapter 3. Habakkuk chapter 3 is... one of the most incredible prayers of praise and faith you could ever read. Many scholars think it is unequaled in all the Bible. And I tend to agree with it the more I study Habakkuk chapter 3. He went from prayers of protest to silence to this prayer of praise and faith and trust. And here's how he ends his prayer. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will be joyful in God my Savior. Wow. As the band was singing that opening song today, Be Thou My Vision, I don't know if you caught it, but it ends like this. Heart of my own heart, whatever befall, still be my vision, O ruler of all. Oh, that's this prayer. That's vision over visibility. Trust over circumstance. Habakkuk heard this song of God's unconditional and self-sacrificing love and he learned the truth that no matter what happens, God loves us and will never leave us. And this is not a general theology idea. This is a very specific personal fact that Habakkuk learned. God loved him. Just as what changed Paul's entire life. Remember we looked at this a few weeks ago? The life I now live in the body, I live by faith, the just shall live by faith, and the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul knew his scriptures too, never knew Christ. And then something happened in his blind silence after the Damascus Road, and he learned, oh, God loves me. And then Paul wrote that great thing in Romans, nothing, nothing at all can separate us from God's love. When Habakkuk said this, nothing had changed. The circumstances that he so violently protested against still existed. Jehoiakim was the, still the evil king over Judah. The Babylonians were still coming to destroy Judah. The innocent were still suffering. 
but he had learned to trust God in all things because now he had been brought to a new place, a place where he loved God for who he truly is, a God of endless love and grace who would rather die himself than have his children die. Habakkuk finally knew God loved him. Now, here's the thing. I know in our humanity, we want answers. I know that. We want things fixed. I know that. But I also know this. If there is a God, if, and if this God is the God Jesus revealed, and did die for us so that we might live, if those three central assertions of the Christian faith are true, then I am confident this is good news. This is the gospel. And if we can apply that good news to our lives every day, if every day, no matter what's happening, we can ask God to reveal his endless love for us every day, Do you do that? Is that part of your prayers? You know, we have a prayer chain here at Cana, and I'm glad we have a prayer chain here at Cana. But I hope all of us use the prayer chain in consistency with what we explore here at Cana. We don't go to God as this great big medicine cabinet in the sky and pray that we put in the right money and he'll cure us and try to appease him that's not it yes pray for God's healing and, and I do that and we should do that but more importantly when I pray for people and myself I pray that they will see God's love in this moment and that I'll see God's love in my moments of pain and despair and doubt and question. Because if God exists, and if it's the God Jesus revealed, and if God died, then this isn't all there is. It can't be. Like, it can't be. What would the point of it all be if this is all there is? Right? I've lived with lepers in India that they're born and they become lepers because their parents were lepers and, and they're never, they're the lowest of the low. Like the outcasts are higher on the scale than lepers in India and then, and then they die. If there's no God, then fine. That, tough, tough luck for you and I'm glad I wasn't born a leper. But if God is Jesus and he died for us, for life, and this is just a chapter of life. Like all chapters, it'll be gone. And it'll be another chapter. If God is the God Jesus revealed, we can trust that. But why wouldn't we? Like why? If you find something better to trust than that, let me know. And I'm not talking about certainty. I'm not certain. 
That's why I cry when my loved ones die. I don't know. No one's ever come back. But if Jesus is God and he came back and he said, will live, then why wouldn't we just want to hope in that? The just shall live by faith. Not answers, not certainty, not healing, not lack of suffering, just faith. Faith in what? That God literally took his own cure so we don't have to be sick anymore. That's why I do church and that's why I'm a Christian and that's why I do communion because this table if it represents something true, it represents endless love, perfect love. And it gives me reason to believe. Even when things in my life don't get fixed. Reason to hope. And reason to trust. And I think what happens when we really enter into these places of trust like this, that's when our lives are transformed. And that's when we can live like Christ in the world around us. The way Dr. Barlow lived. Beautifully, with kindness and mercy and grace. And as we live like that, I'm pretty sure we too will sing to the melody of grace Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, yet I will trust in the God of my salvation. And maybe we can teach the world around us to sing that song too. And right now the world around us needs a song like this. Thanks be to God. Amen.